0: Now entering nerdist.com.
1: Welcome to the Sex Nerd Sandra Podcast. Whoa, what are these kids doing in here? Hey, if you're under 18, go ask your mom. Now that we're alone, let's start the show. Hey, so we're about to go into an awesome conversation I had with the author of Sex at Dawn. But before we do, I'm going to have Dave do his speaker sex with one of my favorite passages. Yeah, that's right. Hello. Yeah. With one of my favorite passages out of the book, Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. So uh, Dave, uh, this is the part where you turn me
0: on. Okay. Do it. Okay. This is the part where you turn me on. (laughs) Just when you thought you knew her. That's the, uh, what this passage is entitled. Just when you thought you knew her, mm. uh, <laughs> do this whole thing like the devil. <clears throat> if uncertainty, okay, I can't even, here we go. If uncertainty is a built in feature of all relationships, <laughs> I feel like I'm hitting on the microphone. <laughs> if uncertainty is a, oh, I just came. Okay. <laughs>
1: I'm uh, just going to moan while you do this. Okay,
0: that's perfect. Yeah. Um,
1: Knowledge. Laid on me.
0: If uncertainty is a built-in feature of all relationships, so too is mystery. Ooh. Many of the couples who come to therapy imagine that they know everything there is to know about their mate. Yeah. My husband doesn't like to talk. My girlfriend would never flirt with another man. She's not the type. My lover doesn't do therapy. Ooh. Why don't you just say it? I know what you're thinking. I don't need to give her lavish presents. She knows I love her. Ooh. I try to highlight for them... How little they've seen, urging them to recover their curiosity and catch a glimpse behind the walls that barricade the other. Yeah. In truth, we never know our partner as well as we think we do. Even in the dullest marriages, predictability is a mirage. A mirage, I say. Ooh, mirage. A mirage. Mirage. Our need for constancy limits how much we are willing to know the person who's next to us. We are invested in having him or her conform to an image that is often a creation of our own imagination. Based on our own set of needs.
1: Oh, that was really hot. Okay, anyway. I
0: do have an erection. Yeah. <laughs> but that's usual. That
1: is, the, that is one of my favorite uh, little sections of mating captivity near the beginning. I Because people assume so much about their mates. Like monogamous, polyamorous... Somewhere in between, whatever you are, solo, it's, don't assume anything that you know everything about a person just because um, they're your partner for several years or whatnot. There's always more to explore, guys. There's always more. Yeah. Anyway, uh, without further ado, here we go into sex chat. People before property. What? People before Property. It was how we were. Oh, I don't agree with that. It's how we boned before there was property to worry about and how we mixed genetically.
0: And now we just have sex with property.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have sex with all of my things. <laughs> yeah. Everything's kind of crusty in my apartment.
0: Yeah. No, I've seen your apartment. It's very white. Yes.
1: Hello, sex nerds. Hi. Good evening. I just assume it's evening. I assume it's like 2 a.m. and you're by yourself in your room. Um, here we are together. Another episode of the Sex and Sonder podcast. And guess what? Today I have something very exciting. This is like super nerdy. So we're about to get into it with someone that um, is kind of uh, amazing in that he and his wife have written a book that are going to change lives. Our changing lives have changed lives and may change your life. But anyway, I'm just being ridiculously f- f- a big fan right now. We're going to be talking about the origins of human um, I guess you could say nature or sort of our predispositions uh, from before we started farming and doing all that stuff and and how that can come into play in terms of our modern day relationships. Uh, we're going to be talking about the book Sex at Dawn and I have uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan here who uh, co-authored the book with his wife Casilda Jetta. And um, there's a reason why I'm so excited. Now, this i am selfish. This is selfish, but I've been—I'm like a maybe not a gold star serial monogamist, but I'm actually like a silver star serial monogamist. I have had many several year long uh, relationships, monogamous, and I've only cheated twice, and they were both really just sloppy makeout sessions. So I've—I've I've done like the the bare minimum of like cheaty type stuff. So I feel really proud of my monogamy and it just just hasn't worked for me and it's felt it hasn't really worked for my nature in a lot of ways. So I'm just being um, honest guys. So hello. Welcome Dr. Christopher Ryan.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Interesting that you feel proud (laughs) for having so successfully thwarted your nature. It's an interesting sort of pride. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah,
1: I've really fought it fiercely. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't like to lie. I don't like to yeah. be deceitful and go behind someone's back. Right. And I like to honor the people that are meaningful in my life right. um, while dying inside. Hmm. I'm really just you know, kind of martyrdom for the sake of um, proving myself committed to a person.
0: Right.
1: So not to say I just want to like go bone a bunch of people just for like, oh, look at me, but I A friend of mine put it really well where he's polyamorous, and he said, you know, some people are Batman and Robin type people, and I'm Justice League. Hmm. You know, that's just my style. I'm like, oh, that works.
2: I think I'm Scooby-Doo.
1: You're (laughs) Scooby-Doo? You like solving crime with (laughs) a a bunch of friends?
2: Stoned hippie in the van, yeah. (laughs)
1: Awesome. (laughs) Living in Europe.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Spain. Barcelona?
2: Barcelona, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Why are you in L.A. right now?
2: Uh, at the end of a speaking tour, mm-hmm. you know, that took me from Johns Hopkins to the University of Chicago and then uh, West Coast, um, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and then down here because I've got lots of family in LA. Oh, and cool. So we're sort of hanging here, and then tomorrow morning we're flying off to Nicaragua for a month. Yeah. Yep. That sounds nice.
1: You're traveling around, talking to people. Um, are people excited about the book? Are they. Angry about the book?
2: Oh. Uh, very excited to the, you know, to the point where the tour is basically uh, has been arranged by readers, and that that's what's so amazing about this tour. the the first two stops at Johns Hopkins and University of Chicago were more or less conventional. You know, student union groups invite me to come and talk and pay my airfare and all that. But all the other events have been independently organized by readers in those cities. so I got an email from a guy in Vancouver named Yvonne, wonderful guy uh, who just said, "Hey, what would it take to get you to come to Vancouver you know mm-hmm. i'd love to hear you talk, and I've got friends who'd love to hear you, and I'd be willing to do the promotional work and set the whole thing up and um, you know, we can charge some money for tickets and, you know, we can do a split at the door or whatever, or you can have so all the people money. people are passionate.
1: Or, they want th- it's you. N-
2: they're nuts. Yeah. It's in Portland, 600 people filled uh, a theater.
1: Some comics can't get that many people.
2: Yeah. And I'm <laughs> this unknown author mm-hmm. giving a PowerPoint presentation. Right. And you your know?
1: book is based on your dissertation uh, yeah. when you're working on your PhD. Yeah. So you're just an all-star right out the gate.
2: Yeah, it we you know I threw one dart and hit the bullseye. It's I don't expect to do that with every book certainly, but uh this one the timing was right and um the fact that Dan Savage uh got a hold of it and loved it and talked it up that really you know got the the turbos charged up right from the from the beginning and it's just been a wild ride ever since then. Now I've got you know, there are uh, TV shows in the offing and documentaries Ooh. and uh, web people talking about setting up websites, communities. I mean, there are just so many different things happening. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. But, you know, as I, I say in the presentation sometimes, uh, sort of half-jokingly, it's like you people, you, don't, you know, you're not kidding me. You're not here to see me. You're mm-hmm. here to see each other. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happened is that we're at a moment in, in this culture where people recognize that the sort of conventional view of relationships is failing. And we quote um, the mm-hmm. playwright Arthur Miller in the book saying that an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I think the basic illusion of You know, if you love someone, that's the only person you'll ever desire. Mm -hmm. That illusion is exhausted. We all Mm -hmm. know it's exhausted. Mm -hmm. Uh, When someone like Newt Gingrich is presenting himself as the moral alternative to Herman Cain, Mm -hmm. you know, a guy who's. We know we've run
1: the course of something.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's pretty silly. So, I think people are are casting about for a new paradigm, Mm -hmm. and that's why they're very excited about our book and and podcasts like yours that are exploring these things.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I want to, I don't want to spend the whole time just summarizing your book, but some basic things. I mean, like, what is the basic thesis of the book?
2: Right. The elevator pitch. Yeah. Like, what is your.
1: Thirty-second, and here it is.
2: Okay, the, the thirty-second uh, synopsis is that the conventional view, what we call the standard narrative right. of human sexual evolution, is that men have always been obsessed with their paternity certainty. Mm-hmm. And so that translates into like, men... that
1: better be my kid.
2: Exactly. And if that's not my kid, why am I giving you my meat and you know the, my status and my shelter and my protection mm-hmm. and all that? Mm-hmm. So the essential sort of packed between men and women according to the conventional narrative is that men have always traded goods and services Mm -hmm. to a particular woman in exchange for her sexual fidelity. Mm -hmm. So women are looking for the best providers. Men are looking for the fertile, you know, young woman who's got the most chance of having lots of healthy babies.
1: Right. That's the separation of uh, church and state or or what the division of labor, (laughs) that that kind of thing where it's like, we are yin and yang and we must complete each other in this way.
2: Right. But the problem with that view, in a practical sense, is that it pits men and women against each other because they've got diverging interests, right? Mm-hmm. Where the men are looking to get lots of young, healthy women pregnant, and the women are looking to, you know, rope one guy into providing for them for life mm-hmm. and all that. So the the battle of the sexes is part of human nature, according to that view.
1: So most people listening, I, I mean, I assume if you're listening. Like like me, this to me is just truth. This is just, well, that's just the way it is. Right. That's but that's just... not
2: the way it is. Mm-hmm. So our book is saying, no, that's not the way it is because – the data just doesn't don't support that view. Mm -hmm. So if you look, for example, at hunter gatherer societies, you see that people don't live in nuclear families. Mm -hmm. Men don't only share their meat and status and protection with one woman and her children. That's not the way it works in hunter gatherer societies. Then we look at primates. That's not how uh, the primates closest to us Reproduce. That's not how they negotiate sexuality and material exchanges of food and so on and so forth.
1: Right. Um, I was reading as I read an interview that you did for Humanist. dot org, and uh, you, in there it says that you said that we are equally close in genetic relation to uh, is it bonobos or bono. Bonobos.
2: Uh, in America, it's bonobos. Bonobos. In England, they tend to say bonobos. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's a UK American thing. Well,
1: I'm just going to be kind of like better than everyone and say bonobos. Okay, you do uh, that. Or,
2: yeah. I'll, I'll represent America. <laughs>
1: Okay, but we're equally um, close to them in relation as we are to chimps. Right. And so bonobos are known for being a very free-loving. Um, they are the hippies, and they, they just love and cuddle and, you know, g rub all over the place. Right. Uh, and chimps like like to smack each other around a little
2: bit. Yeah, although chimps are pretty promiscuous as well. Mm-hmm. You know, both of them are. Multi, what are called multi-male, multi-female mating mm-hmm. system.
1: They're not doves where they mate for life and they stick to pair No, bombs.
2: no. Even doves aren't doves.
1: Right. There's the whole uh, sexual monogamy versus like, social, social yeah. monogamy. Yeah, exactly.
2: Right. With the advent of DNA testing, all these Species that were assumed to be sexually monogamous turned out not to be because the DNA mm. of the chicks didn't match the fathers in many cases. Right, not so much. Yeah, yeah. but anyway, to finish that thirty <laughs> seconds. Oh yes, synopsis, right. Sorry, uh, I get so excited for your listeners. <laughs> uh, what we're arguing is that uh, that view is not supported by the the data from the field of mm. anthropology, primatology, human anatomy and physiology, and contemporary psychosexuality. The research mm. in psychosexuality, and in fact. What you find is that we are a promiscuously breeding species. Mm-hmm. So both men and women are designed by evolution to mm-hmm. have multiple lovers in any given time in their adult lives. Mm-hmm. And that's why monogamy is so hard for us. Because mm-hmm. we are, you know, as I often say in interviews, we are sexual omnivores mm-hmm. just as we're dietary omnivores. Right. And so there's really, from my perspective, there's very little scientific um, dispute on that point. You know, in in terms of our diet, you look at our digestive system, the chemicals in our saliva, the the shape of our teeth, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different things make it quite clear that our ancestors were omnivores. and. You know, then you look at the contemporary world. We eat a lot of meat. Meat smells good, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I often say uh, in terms of monogamy, our book's not an argument against monogamy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of people who haven't read the book misunderstand that. We're simply saying uh, that monogamy is like vegetarianism, okay. right? You can choose to be sexually monogamous throughout your life. But it's like choosing to be a vegetarian, and just because you've chosen not to eat meat doesn't mean bacon suddenly stops smelling good, Mm -hmm. right? Same thing in the erotic world.
1: Or, I mean, maybe we can be like – well, because when I first heard about the book, I did feel a little bit – like I felt the monogamy model threatened. I mean, it is – an alternate paradigm, and it is suggesting that monogamy isn't the of uh, the utmost natural state of being for humans. Um,
2: yeah, but whether something's natural and whether something's good are two different questions, right? The naturalistic mm-hmm. fallacy you know, which holds that if something's natural, it's therefore good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know we don't we try not to fall into that trap. so we don't give any advice in the book, and mm-hmm. we don't um, argue. How anyone should live. But what we argue for is more transparency and sincerity. And as you were saying earlier, you like to honor the person you're with. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're arguing for in the book is, is you know, the first step is figure out what kind of animal you are. Mm-hmm. You know, what's possible. What's your species? For you. Yeah. Both personally, you know, the way Reed Mahalco talks about, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm this species. Um, but also just on a very biological level, you know, you are a homo sapien, which is a promiscuously mating species. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are, there's a whole range of behaviors and, of course, we have some degree of free will and so on. Mm-hmm. But if you stray from that trajectory, there will be trauma. There will be psychological and or physical trauma. So you have to be prepared for that.
1: Like in the book, um, I think I... Was hearing because I'm listening to the audio book, but then mm-hmm. I also read an interview. But it's like being in a climate that's too hot. Like we have a certain window of how hot or cold we can tolerate just naturally. Yeah. And so when you start behaviorally or emotionally or physically or out of the range that you're not like that, you're most predisposed to it can start to be uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. Uh, at the minimum, it can get also. Uh, you know, if you if you repress very strong forces of nature, they're going to come out in another way. Mm-hmm. And in terms of sexuality, we've seen lots of examples of what happens when we repress this energy, you know, in the Catholic Church, you know, Penn State, you know, all these right. examples of people who are unable to live their sexual lives uh in a in a way that doesn't – in a way without shame and mm-hmm. guilt and repression and all that. It just gets all twisted up and destructive yeah. and, and innocent people get hurt.
1: Yeah, I, I struggle sometimes when I am in social situations and I talk about what I do for a living or I'll just mention it and some people get really excited and they're like, oh, my God, oh my God let's talk about that. Oh, my God. Like, you know, Judy, come here. Oh, my God, you know what she does? Like, I'll get that. But then I'll get people who are like – Oh okay. And then you can see the light just die in their eyes and then they just want to go somewhere else. Yeah. And I just wonder what is going on in there for you. Like listeners, I know and I love the grassroots uh, sort of um spreading of this show because a lot of listeners are telling me like, "Oh, I tell all my friends." And that's great, but I'm sure some of you listening you you may have had the experience of telling someone like whispering it to a coworker or a friend from college and then just being like, "Oh, great." whatever and just or, or making fun of you or doing something where they reject that you're listening to a sex podcast and it's like what is that about when there's this sort of it's going to a very dark place in their bodies or yeah. pushed it, and they pushed it they pushed into this dark corner like,
2: <laughs> yeah you know when when we first pitched the book the the title was what darwin didn't know about sex mm-hmm. and it was going to be much more focused on his sex life mm-hmm. or lack thereof
1: right i was listening to the I think part of that chapter
2: Uh is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of sexual repression in his family mm-hmm. and his daughters, his wife. But interestingly, his grandfather was this crazy libertine Erasmus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he was hilarious writing about group sex among flowers and stuff.
1: I was fantasizing that I would be on Jeopardy someday and be like, what was <laughs> Charles Darwin's po- poem? Like, wasn't he a poet?" His grandfather whatnot? was. Yeah, yeah. and um, a medical poet, grandfather. Doctor. Oh, okay, yeah. both yeah. nice. Uh, and then I would know.
2: Yeah, Erasmus, yeah. and that was also Darwin's brother's name. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, but his daughter, uh, whose name escapes me right now, she had a nickname. But uh, oh,
1: Pe- Pe- pepper, Pe-
2: Peepa or something like that. I don't think it was pepper. It was
1: it was like a boy's name almost, Pop Peep.
2: Yeah. 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 Anyway, she, she, did you read the part where she went out like, hunting mushrooms. down the mushrooms?
1: Phallic <laughs> uh, penis mushrooms. Yeah. These got to go. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the maids wouldn't stumble upon them in the forest and be scandalized.
1: Right. she would burn them behind closed doors. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Hilarious. People are
1: so funny sometimes. I love the stories of customers who come in when I'm working at the store and they need to replace toys because they were sick or they were moving and their parents helped and once mom left, they realized that the toy wasn't there anymore. Like the par- There's this pattern where people, when their parents come into their, their lives, and they will just find these sex toys and just throw them out and get rid of them. Yeah. And, and they just laugh it off. And I'm like, no, this is wrong. Confront them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I once... I left... I was on vacation once and I had left um, these very simple bondage ties uh, tied because it's kind of a pain to like tie them and tuck them. So we left them tied. We left to go get dinner and whatnot. We came back and they had been cut off and thrown away
2: in a hotel.
1: Yeah. By the maid. Like like they'd come in to clean the room and they just like, oh, I'm going to cut these off. And I was like, no. So I, I had the manager come in. I showed them the thing. I think two of them were still in a drawer, like they'd been shoved in a drawer, and two of them just disappeared. And, uh, but yeah, free breakfast
2: on that one. Yeah, Good. no. I was Stand like, you need. I
1: was like, you need to train your staff to be sex positive about what they find in people's rooms because that is not okay. That's hilarious. Yeah.
2: And the minute you sort of step over that line, mm. you've got all the advantage. Yeah, because you know? I'm like
1: I'm proud. Yeah. I have no shame.
2: Exactly. Once once you show you don't have any shame, then suddenly the mm-hmm. whole thing shifts to your to your advantage. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of fun sometimes to see people's faces.
2: Yeah, yeah. Although it it as you said, you know, at the beginning of this, it, it's disturbing sometimes when you see how uncomfortable people get mm-hmm. when the subject of human sexuality comes up, and it you know you just you just think how much suffering yeah. they must go through, that they're so uncomfortable about something so bloody, obvious, yeah. and omnipresent. And there's a review, you, you said uh, at the beginning you felt the monogamy um, paradigm a little threatened in, in the book. There's a review I like that I think the title is Why I Wanted to Hate Sex at Dawn but Couldn't.
1: Oh, <laughs> <Aww>, that's sweet. <laughs>
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. And she starts, uh, I think it's a woman who wrote it, and she says, that you know, she was just so tired of hearing her friends tell her she should read this book, and and you know, she's monogamous and she's in a relationship, she's happy, and she really resisted it. And then she read the book and was like, "Oh, wait a minute, this isn't telling me I'm stupid. I, yeah. I thought it would be, but it's not actually."
1: Actually, I have a question about that. Mm. Okay, so pre-property, when we shared things, fierce egalitarianism, I think right. it's called, right? right, where we had to share to survive. We're living in a completely different way in terms of our relationships with each other, sexually and whatnot. I mean, there were still love relationships and pair bonding and and people hanging out with each other, like, yeah, I just like you. Like, let's cuddle. But I mean, it was more open. Then property happens and then thousands of years pass. Millions? I mean, how far? Thousands. Okay. Sorry. I don't have any.
2: About 10,000 years since the first agriculture and the first private property and all that.
1: So, fast forward 10,000 years. We're here now okay let's say i'm a married woman right five years into a, into a marriage, and it's you know it's kind of not that spicy anymore or whatever I mean you say that you're not challenging that, but how can this knowledge help heal um, a possible unhappiness or a sense that something is not right like-
2: well, lots of different ways um, for example there's a couple in Idaho Mm -hmm. uh who who wrote to us um the woman's um a sex uh, a science journalist Mm -hmm. (laughs) got sex on the brain. Uh, (laughs) It's fine. I do all the time. Yeah. Uh and uh she wrote to us to tell us their story, which was they're they're young, they're in their thirties, they have a couple of kids. She and her husband divorced. She didn't really tell me why they divorced, Mm -hmm. but they divorced. And um Independently, friends gave each of them a copy of our book. They read the book They got back together and remarried. So now, not having read the book, your listeners won't maybe understand why. But the point of the book, as I was saying earlier, is not that monogamy is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Not that there's a a, a right or wrong way to structure your relationship. But that we are what we are. Okay. Okay? You can choose – there's a, we quote Schopenhauer in the book um, mm-hmm. saying uh, man can choose what to do, but he cannot choose what to feel. Mm-hmm. So that's the key, right? What we're trying to advocate is more tolerance, flexibility, compassion, understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's how it can help. That's one very direct way it can help. You know, if she's in your example, she's been married five years. Uh, you know, if she's walking down the street and she notices her husband checking out a hot woman walking by, there are different ways mm-hmm. she can react to that. She can feel threatened by it because mm-hmm. she thinks it means he's not attracted to her, he doesn't love her, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, she can say, he's a man. He's a homo sapien. Of course he's attracted to her. Hell, I'm attracted to her, too. She's hot. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can share that. They can talk, hey, look at her. She's hot. Yeah, she's hot. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that can be something they can share. Same thing with porn. Same thing with, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you start from uh, the, the understanding that we are a hypersexual species mm-hmm. and that we're constantly keyed into sex, whether we're acting on it or not, If you begin from that understanding, then it's a lot easier to give each other a break, you know. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean just because my woman checks out another dude that there's something wrong with Mm -hmm. me. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means she's a human being. And there's no reason.
1: Understanding and compassion. I see. I see what you mean. Yeah,
2: there's no reason. I mean, I was in in Sydney a couple months ago speaking there and I was in the hotel lobby and – this really hot woman walked by and there was a couple sitting on the sofa and I was watching the couple and it was insane. The dude was pretending not to notice this woman. The Mm -hmm. wife was pretending not to notice that the husband was pretending not to notice the woman. It was this like,
1: (laughs) this terrible charade. (laughs) It was
2: ridiculous.
1: Yeah. And
2: everyone knows the truth, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone knows, wow, she's hot. You know, I mean, you can't not notice that. Mm -hmm. So, if you if you just begin with that assumption i think things get a lot easier mm-hmm. and then there are there are very concrete examples of ways it can help like for example we talk about how taking birth control pills affects the way women respond to men's smell mm-hmm. you know and there's some very practical information there that can affect how marriages work out you haven't uh, gotten to that chapter yet it, it's
1: okay it's in the book yeah it's in Ooh, the book juicy. it's
2: it's pretty late in the book we talk about Klaus veticent the um, mm-hmm. swiss researcher who uh wanted to understand why is it that women have a sense of smell so much stronger than men's mm-hmm. and you know he would hear his female graduate students talking about guys and you know it'd be, someone would say oh you know yeah he's good looking and he's he's smart and he's funny but man now nah, the smell's wrong. Nah. Yeah.
1: And sometimes in a relationship, they smell great, and then all of a sudden, their smell changes, and everything changes.
2: Right, and that's not them changing. That's you changing. Mm -hmm. That's because you're ovulating or you're not ovulating, because Mm -hmm. through your menstrual cycle, your sense of the appropriate smell changes, Mm -hmm. right? Um,
1: This is so hot, just by the way. I mean, just intellectually, when I... I love knowing things about this stuff. It's so great. Okay. I'm just excited.
2: So Klaus Vatican, what he did was he wanted to understand this. So his hypothesis was that women are picking up information about men's immune systems okay. from their smell. So he, uh, there, there's a thing called major histocompatibility complex, MHC. Mm-hmm. And basically that's like a profile of your immune response.
1: Is that like you can tell who, if you mate with, will be the best to make your kids super strong and awesome?
2: Exactly. That's where this comes from, is his Mm -hmm. research. He did this in the 80s, and it's been repeated a lot of times Mm -hmm. since then. So what he did was he got women who were lacking, let's say there are five, for the sake of argument, let's say there are five elements of the MHC, right? Mm -hmm. So he would get uh, some women who were very low in element one, Mm -hmm. and then other women very low in element two, and so on. Mm -hmm. And then he would get men who also had deficiencies in Mm -hmm. one area. And, of course, he tested them so he knew which ones were which. And his hypothesis was that a woman low in element one would never be attracted to a man who was low in element one because Mm -hmm. then their kids would be very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that would be a biological mistake. Right. So he had these men wear T-shirts for three days. No deodorant, no shower, no nothing. And then stuff the T-shirt in a Ziploc bag. Mm-hmm. And then the women would sniff the T-shirts and rate how attractive they thought the men were based mm-hmm. on the smell in the T-shirts.
1: I feel like there's a possibility that they'd be like gross. But
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I'm- they were fresh. I mean, they were stinky, but fresh. I don't think he let them ferment or anything.
1: Oh, okay. Right. It wasn't like in (laughs) there for a month before the...
2: (laughs) They bury them underground. I mean,
1: I'm very positive. I love the way people's natural scents are. So I'm not being like body negative about that sort of thing. But I'm just saying...
2: Three days a night a stranger's
1: three day... I don't know. It's just some people would be like, oh, but... Well, they probably
2: didn't stick their nose right in there. They probably just, you know... A nice Yeah, a little... But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, interestingly, what he found was in about 80% of the cases, the women confirmed his hypothesis, right? They never picked the guy. But in about 20% of the cases, the women seemed to be choosing randomly. Huh. And he went back and looked at the women and found out those women were on the pill.
1: Ooh.
2: Right? So, the.
1: That was an accidental discovery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was a variable he hadn't accounted for. Yeah.
2: So. Uh, And then, of course, they did the research again and again to confirm this. And so what this tells us is that when you're on the pill, your natural subconscious choosing function – Based on you know compatibility of immune response is uh, is superseded, it's overridden. So you meet a guy, you're on the pill. You meet a guy, you both like Louis CK and Thai food, and everything's great. And you get together, and then you decide to have a kid. You go off the pill, you have and then a kid.
1: You realize it's not right.
2: Five years down oh the road. Oh my
1: god! So if you're dating the pill. And we're talking about oral everyday yeah, birth pill. Control, I mean, yeah. we don't know about the Nuva ring or the patch uh, or
2: whatnot. I would assume so, it's probably mm-hmm. the same, right? Anything that's convincing your body you're already pregnant mm-hmm. is overriding this function.
1: Oh my God. So if you're dating and you're really looking for Mr. Right or Mr. Right now or whatever, uh, then you want to not be on this if you want to really be in tune.
2: Well, I would say I mean, if, you- if you're if you if you're looking for a guy to have a baby with, right? Do not like marry him or make any long term commitment or have a baby with him until you spent a few months at least with him off the pill. That's so important. Yeah, because like like you said, I mean, five years down the lo- the road, how many couples, mm-hmm. you know, have a kid and then. One day the woman wakes up and she's just repulsed by the guy. Mm-hmm. And it's not his fault. It's not her fault. It's not the kid's fault. Oh you know, they just don't understand what's happening on the biological mm-hmm. level.
1: You know, the whole genetic, like there's the debate about genetics and, okay, being a female. And I mean, from time to time, I'm feeling like, oh, I kind of feel like making babies. Like, that's just how my body's telling me to do. And I'll think about it and I'll think about, um, the male or males in my life and i'll think about them genetically and be like okay what do you have to offer in terms of genetics and me mixing like what will our child be like how's their eyesight going to be i mean how tall are they going to be and i'll think about these things i feel like such an asshole i feel like (laughs) a huge jackass thinking about these things but i do i mean and i know that it's natural and it's actually good but it's nice to know that Just my natural sense of smell could also – if the person just feels right, smells right and everything, my body may know better that it's going to be fine if I want to mate with that person.
2: Yeah. And as we discuss in our book, our bodies are optimized to make these decisions in lots of ways that we can't possibly understand. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what What we argue in the book is that our natural mating system mm-hmm. is that we live in these groups, right? Our ancestors mm-hmm. lived in groups that were characterized by fierce egalitarianism, as you mm-hmm. said earlier, where everything's shared, mm-hmm. right? From food to protection and so on. Uh, women breastfeed one another's babies and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like,
1: that's one love right there.
2: Yeah, exactly. It totally. takes a village and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so if... Everyone's having several different sexual relationships at any given time. Then as a sexually mature woman, you're having sex with several different guys Mm -hmm. all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So there your body is able chemically Mm -hmm. to choose from the different sperm. Mm-hmm. it's called sperm competition is what it's called and lots this happens in lots oh, right. of animals you were telling
1: me because we met at Dr. Susie's. and you were telling me after that the, the egg actually sucks the sperm
2: well the, it, it, it doesn't suck it so much but it does sort of reach out and choose okay. the sperm that's the most appropriate and there are all sorts of mechanisms in a woman's body for for filtering out sperm that isn't appropriate mm-hmm. so the conventional narrative holds that as a woman you sort of make these decisions on a conscious level and say well he would be a good provider and you know brad pitt would be the perfect man for every woman <laughs> but in fact he isn't because mm-hmm. his immune response is isn't compatible with lots of women's mm-hmm. right and so he's not going to smell right to some women you know johnny depp is not going right to smell right to i yeah, will look past that you wear a nose clip
1: <laughs> <laughs> No, I just want to give those guys hugs. I don't really want to sit on their face or anything. I don't think. I'm not sure. I don't, fit, yeah, I don't if, like crushing If it me. comes up, you yeah, know, that's true. You might as well. Well, you know, we'll just have to see, guys, how that goes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> are they listeners? I don't know. Johnny and Brad. I'm sure
1: they are. <laughs> They've sent me fan mail. No, they haven't. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Um, yeah, no, that's just really interesting. I don't know. I, that.
2: Orgasm is a way to do that, by the way. You can have sex with four different guys tonight, mm-hmm. but if one of those guys makes you come, mm-hmm. his sperm will be favored over the others.
1: What about vibrators? Then you can come with everyone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, that's uh, overriding the natural. Oh, no. You've got to get natural here.
1: Oh, no. That's right. Well, I mean, <laughs> but it's, it's important to take this information, but then also acknowledge what the modern uh, elements are that play into this. Right. The pill. Sure. Vibrators.
2: Sure. What, cologne. Yeah.
1: Okay. What's up with pheromones? Because I did ask an evolutionary uh, scientist once about pheromones. They're like they don't exist, or they're not really the pheromones that you buy in colognes and whatnot. When they have, say, they have pheromones, are really like animal pheromones that don't really do anything for us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. That the, the cologne thing is is a lot of hype, mm-hmm. um, but they do exist, and that's basically what uh, Vedicand was studying was pheromones, right? Molecules that. Uh, You know, uh, interact with our smell receptors that convey important information. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what they are, and they do exist in humans, certainly. Yeah. You know, in fact, that's one of the better explanations for pubic hair.
1: Oh, you mean to be able to carry the scent? Right. Yeah. Right. It's important. Yeah, we had a uh, Mary who was? uh, she's been on the show a couple times, and she doesn't like to... She's a dom. She's really super cool. Yeah, redhead. Awesome. Uh, She doesn't shave her armpits because she really loves that very carnal scent, and she likes the pheromones, and she likes to just be very in her body. Yeah. I admire that.
2: Walt Whitman called that the scented herbage of my breast. Ooh. Yeah.
1: That's very poetic. He was a very
2: natural guy, Whitman. Yeah, Yeah.
1: You just said... uh, You talked about how we have all these different ways in our bodies to choose mates mm. because the thing that, cause I was really trying to play devil's advocate and okay, I'm in a small village type group and we're eating together, sleeping together. We're raising each other's kids. I'm not sure uh, who's the father of some of my kids. It doesn't really matter. We're all taking care of each other. We're surviving together. What about, um, I guess we'd call it inbreeding where, mm. okay, so, I may kind of know, like, all right, that guy over there, my mom gave birth to him. Maybe we shouldn't, like, make out. But that guy over there, I don't know that we share the same father. But that's fairly close genetically. Um,
2: I- yeah. Humans, chimps, and bonobos, uh, one of the things that the three of us share is we're all what's known as a female exogamous species. Mm-hmm. Which means that the females leave the group into which they were born when mm-hmm. they reach sexual maturity. hmm um, so, and there's recent, um, research in human genetics that shows that, uh, over time women have uh, wandered much further away from their place of birth than men have mm. over, you know, the, the millennia. So it's pretty clear that that's the same, that, that that's true of our species. So the way it works is in hunter gatherer societies, when a girl reaches sexual maturity, normally she'll leave and, and join another group. So mm. that. Uh, on a biological level is interesting because it shows it indicates that that women are keyed into a desire for sexual novelty which is something that's normally applied to men
1: i do like novelty in bed
2: there you go it's
1: fun to explore new things
2: novelty items
1: oh novelty (laughs) items ooh yeah that is actually funny because in a most sex toys you walk in I mean unless it's just all porn but when it comes to the toys it's like 90% for females yeah it yeah. keeps a novel
2: yeah uh, I'm just thinking about sex toys for men there's something I I can't I've never really wrapped my head around sex toys for men
1: I love the, sex toys for men like the,
2: f- the fake vaginas and stuff
1: it's just a dildo inside out yeah it's giving your penis a hug just a nice <laughs> hug
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, maybe someday I'll give it a shot. I don't know. I've I've never. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, like Jenna, it just seems like s- too surgical or something. Like you know, there's. I mean, a, a, a disembodied penis. Okay. A dildo. Just, can be
1: terrifying. Just saying disembodied.
2: That, that <laughs> yeah. sounds weird. Anyway, yes. But it just, It just. I don't know. It just sort of seems obvious. But like. The, the the disembodied vagina uh-huh. that seems
1: like it's like a cross section like a stake of person
2: yeah it's like how do you decide where to cut you know <laughs> where to end where does the body You're end getting in the... way
1: too biological yeah here. I
2: know it just seems
1: it's just a tight stretchy tunnel
2: yeah with yeah. a happy little face on the end like, <laughs> <laughs> happy little face that's the yeah. cervix <laughs>
1: hi
2: come on in because sometimes
1: it's a little face and like a tiny like spiky grin you know like, really <laughs> yeah this is where you put your penis um yeah. No, they're actually great for blowjobs. Like, I, I talk to people who are uncomfortable or want to add something. Like, I talk to a lot of people who are insecure about their oral sex prowess. So, sleeves are actually a really nice thing so that you don't have to worry about the tightness around the shaft too much. So, you can work more on the head and then uh, just kind of play around with the sleeve a little bit. And it's kind of a nice little tip. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so it's fun. Partner play is fun. Interesting, yeah. Handjobs okay. are fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 sure. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you- if the good Lord had one of a, wanted us to use fake vaginas, you know, he would have made our arms shorter, right? It's not- <laughs> that's what my priest told me.
1: <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Okay, sorry. I, I started thinking about T Rexes and I got really thrown <laughs> off. I'm like, oh, right, because we wouldn't be able to reach. Okay, yeah, yes, I understand. It, that's it. Oh, God.
2: All right, so back to serious sex. Here. Oh, yeah, we need to get serious. Yeah.
1: It's very serious. What is your favorite part of all this
2: yeah, well, there are lots of things I mean you know the things that people like to cover in interviews that one of them is um, a partable paternity that 's a big one
1: a partable
2: partable paternity it 's called paternity. yeah and it 's the notion that a child can have several different fathers right we think it 's sort of self evident that one sex act can result in a child, but mm-hmm. most people have no idea that that 's the way it works. And when you think about it, there's no reason they would, you know, because everybody's having sex and women are getting pregnant. And there's no reason to really think that one sex act would result in that pregnancy and the rest Mm -hmm. would all be superfluous. Um, So there are many societies, most of them in the Amazon basin, but also in Papua New Guinea and other parts of the world, where the people believe that a a fetus Mm -hmm. is literally made of accumulated semen.
1: Oh. Right. That's a lot of semen.
2: Right. You really so you got to get on that. <laughs> you get to work. So when when a woman uh when a girl becomes um mature and she starts to menstruate, she's sort of half pregnant, mm-hmm. right? But she won't start to develop a fetus until she's accumulated enough semen. So like women everywhere, you know, these women want to have babies that are smart and funny mm-hmm. and good looking. Mm-hmm. So these women will make sure they have sex with the smart guy. Like, you're and the funny. funny guy come the, here. Exactly. Kind of like what you were doing with the genetic stuff, right? But in a different mm-hmm. framework. So they'll have sex with these different guys to get mm-hmm. some of their essence into the baby. And then when she gives birth, these different men will all come forward and say, yes, I'm one of the fathers. Mm-hmm. And we even quote one of the tribes in the Amazon has a different Word for the different types of father. There's the father who put it in. Mm-hmm. There's the father who mixed it around. Oh. There's the father who spilled it out. They're all so There's no way. Yeah, yeah. Like so, sloppy thirds, like that exactly, guy, basically. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, okay, now I think that's beautiful. And I think that's sweet, but also part of me kind of goes, "Oh, isn't that quaint because i'm like i'm I'm no science, and science is one man, one woman, baby time. Are you talking culturally that that's sort of how that's just very common to believe that, yeah. and that that is i I think that's great actually. I love to have i mean I would love to have like five parents except they'd be kind of naggy beside that, but
2: well, maybe they'd leave you alone because they'd have lots of other kids. That's true. So it's all diffused. That's true. And then I can That's, just choose
1: who I like the most and I hang out with them.
2: Exactly. And, and, you know, people still grow up that way in parts of the world. Mm. And and we talk about that in the book as well, the psychological repercussions of having one mother, mm-hmm. one father, if you're lucky. Mm. You know, a lot of kids grow up just with one mother.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, psychologically, think about how that feels to a little kid knowing there's only one person that I'm reliant on for everything. And if that one person Mm -hmm. stops loving me, I'm screwed.
1: You're putting a lot of eggs in one basket.
2: You're emotionally, you are, you know, uh, you're bonded to Mm -hmm. this one person for your very survival. Mm -hmm. Whereas if our model of human evolution is correct and and this aspect of it, it, no one's really arguing that, um, our ancestors raised kids communally, mm-hmm. you grow up with lots of women who love you and mm-hmm. lots of men who love you. And, you know, in fact, in most of these societies, the, there's no specific word for your mother or your father. It's mm-hmm. every, every man is father, every, mm-hmm. or uncle, you know, mm-hmm. every woman is mother or mm-hmm. aunt. Mm-hmm. And so in that sort of, um, an environment, you're not fixated on one person to solve all your problems Mm -hmm. and take care of all your needs. And now translate Mm -hmm. that into adult notions of love, Mm -hmm. right? We transfer that one parent love to our one mate love. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you grew up with many sources of parental love, maybe it comes more naturally to have many sources of sexual love as well. Mm -hmm. It stands to reason. So there are lots of It's hard for us to wrap our heads around how different uh, the social world of our ancestors was. We Mm -hmm. sort of assume that the distant past was more or less like it is now, just a little more primitive. We call that tendency to project into the past Flintstonization Mm -hmm. in the book. You know, like, yeah, they they worked down at the, you know, the rock quarry and they drove their little cars. They were different than our cars, but they had cars. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that... Notion that everything was sort of the same, just a little more primitive, is actually scientifically kind of absurd, but that's what we do.
1: Yeah. No yabba-dabba-doing.
2: There may have been some yabba-dabba-doing. Just a little bit.
1: But that it was so very different. Actually, well, okay, two things. The first one, just to get back to that for just a moment. My question is, do you know of a group where the idea was brought to them by some outsider, like, hey, just FYI, uh, genetically, only one of you is the actual genetic father. Like, are there any cases of that? Or like, did that, or were they like, so? Or, or were they like, oh, shit, you know?
2: No, yeah, there are lots of cases where missionaries or, you know, anthropologists or whomever tried to explain to people the quote unquote right way to view mm-hmm. these issues and mm-hmm. you know generally people aren't interested in changing uh things that are working
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know there there are so many cases That's,
1: that is a great just right there it works so we,
2: yeah i yeah. mean there we quote um a conversation between a jesuit missionary in canada he's with some people he is in the 1700s um, and he's with living with some Indians there, trying to convert them. And uh, he said something about um, how he had said to one of the Indians how shameful it was that they were all sleeping with one another, and that you know, and you know, what's wrong with you letting your woman, you know, sleep with these other men? How are you going to know whose kids are whose? And the Indian said to him, "Ah, you, you French people are so strange. You only <laughs> love your own children. We love all the children." Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. what? what is it you're trying to convince us to do? It doesn't make sense to us. Why would I only love that child? Mm-hmm. You know, why wouldn't I love that child? I've watched, I've, you know, lived right next to him since he was born, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I was being interviewed uh, last week by a woman on the Playboy channel, and mm-hmm. she was talking about adopting kids, how she'd adopted kids. And she said, you know, before I adopted kids, I always thought it was like this, you know, I wanted my own kid, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and she said, well, I've had this kid for two years now and he is my kid. Yeah. You know, I don't care biologically, genetically, you know, where he came from. He's my kid. I've mm-hmm. raised him, you know, and and what I was saying to her is like, yeah, that's human nature. Yeah, It's not human nature to say, I don't give a damn about anybody's kids except my own. And if I find out you know that you slept with someone else, and mm-hmm. you know then I'm just going to disown that kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not natural. That's that's fucked up,
1: right? Like we seem to know that there's still that connection there. It's it's like your friends or the, your family that you choose. It's I mean, yeah. you can have incredibly deep connections with people in your life that are not just yeah um, blood relatives. Like we we like to connect. Mm-hmm. We're humans
2: we do and and we like to connect sexually you know and what we say in the book is that human human sexuality is not primarily about reproduction mm. you know that's the big mistake we make we think because we're thinking scientifically, we're thinking genetically, we're thinking mathematically, we're saying, okay, sex is about reproduction, therefore homosexuality, for example, is a big conundrum. How can that possibly persist in our species? Because, you know, homosexuals don't reproduce. Right. But the problem with that is that the whole premise is wrong. 99.9% of human sexual events do not result in conception. Mm-hmm right you're talking about hand jobs they result
1: in high fives
2: <laughs> unless it's a hand job right. in which case you might oh, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's, um but <laughs> uh, yeah most human sexual. you know I, I always say when i give presentations unless it's a real young crowd like think of how many times you've had sex in your life mm-hmm. uh, of any sort you know divide that by how many kids you've had
1: i haven't had kids yet but i'm trying okay, okay. so
2: your ratio is way over a yeah. thousand at this point that's typical of our species, mm-hmm. even without birth control, 1,000 to 1 or more, right? Mm-hmm. Gorillas have sex 10 to 15 times per birth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's insane. So look at, you know, compare us to other primates. Gibbons, which are the only uh, monogamous ape, they have sex like 10 times per birth. We have sex a 1,000.
1: you are very sexy.
2: We're very sexy. and And gibbons are much more typical of mammals than we are. Mm-hmm. There are only a handful of mammals who have sex for obviously Mm. non-reproductive purposes. Humans, uh, bonobos, chimps, the three very closely related. You were European there. Bonobos, did I say? Yeah. Uh, British way? Okay.
1: I'm better than everyone. Bonobos.
2: (laughs) Homo sapiens, bonobos, chimpanzees, and dolphins.
1: I'm going to go over to the laboratory (laughs) and visit (laughs) the bonobos. Yeah.
2: Anyway, yeah. yeah, so anyway, that's you know let's start with the the understanding that uh human sexuality is about establishing and maintaining complex social bonds
1: uh, I love that
2: that's what it's about
1: yeah i it's so refreshing, um I think in the very beginning of the book, at some point it's mm, animals. <laughs> Have sex. I mean, animals for animals, do? Like like dogs, you know, they have sex for reproduction. They. I mean, they also have fun. Well, no, the, the animals have fun. When Fe- they have sex. Well, it
2: depends on the animal. Male dogs are running around humping everything. Mm-hmm. But female dogs aren't interested in sex unless they're ovulating. Mm-hmm. Most animals, the female is not accepting, uh, will not, like, allow sex to take place unless she's ovulating. Mm-hmm. Humans are... Humans and bonobos are the only uh, primates that where the female has sex, you know, when she's menstruating, when she's already pregnant, when she's postmenopausal. This is extremely unusual.
1: So we're because I remember it's basically we are less like animals when we are being exploratory in our sexualities and enjoying for non reproductive purposes. And we're more like animals in the animal kingdom when we are. Thinking of sex is just for reproduction, right?
2: Right. Like strict Catholics are more animalistic about sex than hippies.
1: <laughs> there is a quote for you. Yeah, right there. Right. Write that down. <laughs> There's a blurb. Yeah. Tattoo that on my finger somewhere. Bring my hand somewhere.
2: I don't have tattoos. I don't know.
1: I can put it anywhere I want. Um. God, it's really hot. I'm really into it.
2: Do Do your listeners know what you look like?
1: Um. Some of them. Some no. of them don't. Why?
2: Because I'm just thinking that you're very attractive and they, they should know that when they're oh. listening to you
1: guys you think'm attractive
2: isn't oh I? no she is trust me trust oh, me
1: thank you I appreciate that I'm also uh we've we've done a few shows uh, where I talk about uh, how uncomfortable I am with uh, myself as a I'm Self-aware in an awkward nerd kind of way, uh-huh. so usually when compliments come my way, I go to my iPhone. And I- <laughs>
2: <laughs> As she's doing right now, yeah,
1: I like to uh, self-narrate my my actions and look at notes.
2: <laughs> But yes, thank you. So you star in the movie of your life, right? Uh, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Um. No, it was really interesting. Is uh, what was it? a few episodes ago we did one on my high school reunion,
2: uh-huh.
1: and. Mainly that it was uh, some—it was like a crazy man fest for me. Mm. It was just, and I don't know if I was right in the right ovulatory period. I don't even know if that's a word, but it was just a lot of man energy coming my way, and it was like this crazy mating dance of just like I don't know. So it was just a very—it felt very much like a ancient strange mating ritual of just lots of peacocks running around trying to peacock. Right. It was fun. Not normal for my life at all. I'm usually in the corner watching everyone else. Uh, what's your life like? Oh, you must get hit on a lot going around the country, being like, "Mr. Mr. I'm so smart and I've got a PhD and call me Doctor and Doctor Love."
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I doctor. I we were talking. I was talking with you and Casilda, and that that cute little Asian girl came up and started talking to you too. Yeah. Yeah. after and, I, and I, I remember just hearing her i was kind of like backing away giving you guys space and she's like so are you guys are you guys like monogamous or like you guys have an open relationship and i'm not going to ask you about your personal relationship I mean, unless you want to tell me um but i just thought it was really cute to see you guys getting hit on I
2: do. yeah yeah it's it's never clear whether we're being hit on or if people are just curious Oh, you know, sometimes it's clear, but (laughs) I think
1: it was very clear at that moment that she was was down. She was very down. Oh, well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. It was like screaming in my face. I'm like, I'll let you two be with her now. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go over here with the guy uh, that's sticking himself with things. Uh, <laughs> the sword swallower. The sword swallower. <laughs> you know, it's the second sword swallower I've met this year. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's a big year for you. I guess so. Sword swallowing. And, and neither one of them have a very good answer about how to combat the gag reflex. It's really... Mm. I need answers, people. Do um, you want me to talk about the
2: most woe? Well? In China, the matriarchal society where women have sex with lots of different men.
1: I'm going to put my phone down and not care about my notes. And I want to totally talk about this thing you just mentioned that I'm sure is really juicy.
2: The most well. Um, Yeah. Marco Polo wrote about them. He Mm. and his uncles or whoever he was with um, traveled through that, that area and, um, they're very interesting because they're the sort of society that should not exist if the standard narrative of human sexuality were true. Ooh. Yeah, it's a great counterexample. The way the Mosuo society works is um, everyone, uh, man, male and female, is completely sexually autonomous. So there's no slut-shaming, there's no ownership, there's Mm -hmm. no marriage as we conceive of marriage, which is essentially a property exchange.
1: Everyone moves from their own sense of sexuality and what they want.
2: And every sexual encounter is seen as being a unique, one-time-only, no-obligation event. And so uh, they call it seise, which... Interestingly, Western anthropologists have translated to walking marriage. Hmm. But we talk you – know, we uh, quote several um, Mosuo people who say, no, it's nothing like marriage. It has nothing to do with marriage. Mm-hmm. It's a sexual arrangement. So w- the way it works is that the, um, it's a matriarchal society. Okay. So the girls live with their mothers in a house built around a courtyard. And when a, a girl reaches sexual maturity, she's given her own room, which is called a flower room. Ew. This society is in the, the foothills of the Himalayas. Right. And um, so the flower room opens onto the courtyard, but it also has a private door opening to the street. My and, goodness. Yeah. And so that girl can invite anyone she wants to come in to spend the night with her. It can be a different guy every night, it can be three guys in one night, it can be whatever she wants. And the only rule is that the guy can't be there in the morning. So he's not invited to stay for breakfast. Right. Mom doesn't want to meet him. That's, we're not
1: emotionally bonding here. We are having a good time.
2: Well, it could be emotional mm-hmm. bonding. You know, like you said in in our conception of prehistory, we're not saying there was no love. We're not saying when we say casual sex or promiscuity, we have to keep in mind that these people know each other really well. That's true. You know, it's not they're not living in a big city full of strangers.
1: And I have a huge, huge problem with the fact that you you're only allowed to have one of two types of Sexual connection in our culture. It's relationship y, marriage type love connection or casual, I don't give a shit about you sex. Right. And I have, like, I just, I love people. So, like, it's hard for me to, like, only be able to do one of the two. It's right. weird. Like, it's it feels almost weird. like you
2: can have primary or tertiary. What about secondary? You yeah. know, where's that middle zone mm-hmm. where you care about someone, but you're not necessarily going to set up house with them, you know?
1: Right. And Friends with Benefits is like, okay, we watch football and we touch each other's genitals sometimes. Oh, it's weird. I don't know. That's a,
2: that feels weird too. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. like most football teams actually you know, <laughs> slap on the ass after a good play.
1: Yeah. I just reach a little bit under. sometimes. Right, right. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. So,
2: so anyway, the stay. only rule is that the guy can't stay there. Right. For mm-hmm. the, for the morning. So, okay. What happens when the woman gets pregnant? Everyone says, well, mm-hmm. who's, you know, who's going to be the father, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Well, it turns out that the paternal responsibility for the kids falls to the girl's brothers. Oh. So, you as a man, your job is taking care of your sister's kids. Huh. You, they're the ones you take fishing and teach how to throw a frisbee and whatever it is that, you and know, nephews you, and nieces. Yeah. Those are your, your biological kids are a non issue. You don't even know if you have kids or not. Now, maybe if you've got, you know, particular look and a kid comes out with a particular look Mm -hmm. and you've had sex with that woman, then, you know, okay that's probably your kid biologically.
1: That's Hook Nose Joe's kid. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone knows.
2: But, you know, you don't have any responsibility. So there is a case of a society in which the men just don't give a damn about their paternity at all. That's so hot. Yeah.
1: I don't know why, but it speaks to me.
2: Well, you'll see. I mean, they're really happy. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Chinese have worked very hard to force them to adopt conventional marriage. And mm-hmm. they hate it. They, yeah. They've starved them into it, literally. And uh, but the people say uh, we interview uh, or we quote a woman saying, you know, why would I want to live with a man? When men and women live together, they always scream at each other. (laughs) You know, love is like the seasons. It comes and goes. Why try to control it? You know, it's beautiful the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. So there are lots of examples of societies around the world that have a very different conception of these issues.
1: What about if you have a whole bunch of daughters and no sons?
2: What if you have a bunch of daughters and no sons? Good question. They probably, uh, you know, there will be other families that have a bunch of sons and no daughters. So Mm -hmm. maybe they they work it out that way. Mm -hmm. You know, they swap around. I mean, we do talk about um, people in, I think it was in Fiji, uh, where a woman was interviewed talking about kids. And she said, yeah, well, you know, I've had six kids, but I gave two of them to my sister. Mm-hmm. and the anthropologist was like well, what do you mean you gave two of them to your sister well my sister you know didn't have any sons and i had these two extra sons so I'll, i gave them to her but it's <laughs> great you know we all hang out it's like and the anthropologist was like oh that must have been so traumatic and well no no of course it wasn't traumatic mm-hmm. you know i love my sister and she didn't have any sons so what what else would i do you know yeah it's just interesting to see how these things that seem so self-evident yeah. to us are not at all once you step away from your particular cultural perspective
1: yeah i uh i find i find this type of information i mean personally healing for me because coming from a kind of a i don't like to say hippie place of love but just like a really open-minded like i just when i like when i date i tend to just be very loving but not i don't need to own the person that I'm interested in and there's always this very strange thing where they can't quite process that I'm affectionate and like them but actually have no interest necessarily being needing them to be there always or anything and there's just this interesting conversation that'll come up about those sorts of things that's why my nature has always been kind of odd I feel I used to think okay maybe I'm just like more evolved in some way it's just kind of maybe I'm just different in that way but it kind of feels like I'm actually ancient like it feels like like i'm more ancient somehow now that i'm like oh maybe i'm just i don't know i feel that a little bit
2: yeah well you know my my perspective on these things which i'll explore a lot more in the next book is that
1: your title's pretty pretty awesome
2: civilized to death yeah yeah um you know that there's a lot of wisdom in human nature and we are uh, we 've strayed away from it and and we see it in so many different ways you know you look at You look at how our modern lifestyle conflicts with the life we were designed to live, and that 's where you find disease that 's mm-hmm. where you find chronic stress that 's where you find you know, hysteria in terms of sexuality or uh, intestinal, you know, uh, digestive disorders and sleeplessness and erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just go down the list of the things that are plaguing humanity. Every one of them is uh, an example of where we are living in direct conflict with the way we were meant to live. So there is there is a way that the more you evolve personally i think the closer you get to some very ancient ways of being because you find you peel away the cultural baggage and you get to what's inside there and what's inside is you know you peel away the cultural baggage of a dog you get a wolf eventually you know Uh, i think it's sort of the same we're domesticated
1: get in tune with your inner wolf (whistles) wolf wolf yeah Um, Okay, last question because we totally have to wrap this up. Um, In your studies, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but I just thought I'd throw it out there because um, nerds, I mean my people, we're kind of awkward um, and lots of internal monologues and there's a lot of wanting to be loved and wanting to be in relationships but having a hard time with the dating scene and the uh, attraction scene. So have you come across just just basic ways to attract a mate in terms of, I mean, I mean, besides playing up your sexual secondary sexual characters, like, Oh, cleavage and licking the lips and putting on ruse. So you're like, look all healthy and like stuff like that. But I mean, does anything come to mind when I say like, just a little
2: sense of humor, sense of humor, huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have noticed something very interesting. Um, just on this book tour, I was on the speaking Mm tour, uh, That there's a real convergence of uh, high IQ and uh, alternative sexual configurations. Right. Huge. Yeah. You know, like the people who come to these events are, you know, by and large, they're really smart people. They're Mm. working in high tech. They're doing alternative energy stuff. They're, you know, at Boeing or Microsoft or, Mm. you know, Silicon Valley, whatever. Those are the people who are most enthusiastic about this because, you know, it's like, why is someone attracted to science fiction, you know, because they're looking at alternative realities because mm-hmm. they recognize the limitations in their own reality. And they're looking at other ways of con- conceiving of things and other ways of living a life.
1: Doctor and, Who fans, listen up.
2: Yeah. And, and so I think, um, you know, the best if you're a nerd and, uh, you know, you're looking to meet somebody the best way is probably walk around with a copy of Sex at Dawn in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier that people come to these events when I give a talk, like San Francisco, 450 people, mm-hmm. right? Portland, 600. The reason they're coming is not to hear me give a PowerPoint presentation. It's because they know they're going to meet smart, open-minded, erotically alive people there. Yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think there's – a big appetite for that. Mm. And uh, and yeah, if you know, play to your your strong suit. If you're smart, you know, do things that show that you're smart. Sense of humor, I think is the sexiest thing going.
1: It's pretty important.
2: Works better than rouge on me, I'll tell you <laughs> that.
1: Although I have read that women that sense of humor for females, it's more valued for males find it valuable if you have a good sense of humor in terms of how you hear someone's jokes and not that you are funny yourself. And well, I was I reading think, that and I was yeah, like, yeah, men oh.
2: tend to get threatened mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, I think by yeah. by women. And so I there's some advice for men, you know, get over that. Mm-hmm you know that
1: yeah I'm funny sometimes all right sometimes I'm not but just you know don't <laughs> hold it against me
2: <laughs> well I mean it's self de- its self defeating because you know a man wants a woman who's smart mm-hmm. and funny and you know all the rest of the stuff because I mean let's face it if you're if you're looking for a long term relationship with someone the sexual passion fades away mm-hmm. so then you're left with whether or not you like hanging out, mm-hmm. right? When that's going to come down to sense of humor and yeah. intelligence and things like that and basic decency. So if you're going to be intimidated by a woman who's smart and funny, then you're fucked, you know, because <laughs> you're never going to be with the right woman because you'll eliminate her from the competition right from the beginning, you right. know? So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's different. I, but the advice I give to men is like, get over your insecurities, mm-hmm. you know? You're, it really trips them up. Yeah. Yeah, and your dick's big enough. If it isn't, you know, use some other part of your body. You know, you can. <laughs> there's Get, always something. Work on
1: getting her very aroused because the more you make her erogenous tissue erect, the tighter she's going to be, there the you more go. you're going to fit together. It's a better.
2: win-win for everybody.
1: Everybody's happy then. Yeah, uh, heterosexual,ly speaking. Um, uh, Chris, thank you for coming i'm so happy to have had you on this show
2: i'm glad it worked out like it
1: was so perfect to to meet you and be able to grab you right before you hop on a plane far far away to an exotic land yeah yeah so um i'm listening to sex at dawn on audiobook uh i got it from audible.com um I'm really enjoying it I'm still going to get a hardback uh, copy because I love reference. I love referencing and I'm glad going to read it again uh, so that's what's what I'm doing but I highly suggest you you rock this book if you're curious about it yeah and if
2: yeah and if you want to think about it people can go to our website there are excerpts there Ooh, and, yes. and you know you can watch videos of lectures I've given and hear interviews and stuff
1: oh great is that yeah. um, are there any other I know you have a, a Twitter handle
2: yeah there's a Twitter thing but our website is just sexatdawn.com okay yeah, and, yeah and, and you can see there there's a Twitter thing and a Facebook feed and all that where I I put interesting sex news.
1: All right. Well, uh, that's our show. You know me, Sandra Doherty, Sex Nerd Extraordinaire, blah, blah, blah. sexnerdsandra.com. I coach. I talk to people. I teach workshops. I go to events. I do things. So that's me. Oh, iTunes, please comment on iTunes. I love it when you guys do that. One of my favorite things is just wake up in the morning, see if anyone commented. And when they do, I go, Oh, I feel better about myself. My day is going to be good because I I'm have a very, you know, I talk to myself like that. Whatever. Don't judge. All right. Have a good one. Talk to you next week. Bye.
0: Now
2: leaving Nerdist.com.